Hello, and welcome to Through the Human Geography Lens, a podcast brought to you by the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group, or WWHGD. I'm Terry Ryan. And I'm Gwyneth Holtz. And today we're here with our guest, Dr. Melinda Latouri from Colorado State University, who will be speaking about her research on secondary cities, participatory mapping, and water security. Melinda is a longtime friend of the WWHGD. She was a speaker during secondary cities and participatory mapping in 2016, mapping water availability and its impact on humans in 2020, and she came back for the 50th WWHGD anniversary event focused on planetary health in 2020. A lot of expertise in the studio today. Welcome, Melinda. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we first met many years ago when you were working on the Secondary Cities Project. What is that project, and can you tell us a little bit about its goal? Sure. The Secondary Cities Project um, went from 2016 to about 2019, well, I say 2015 to 2019, had a focus on secondary cities, which are under-examined, under-mapped locations around the world in low- and middle-income countries. And we focused on emergency preparedness, human security, and resiliency through the Office of the Geographer and Global Issues and the Humanitarian Information Unit. Um, we used a lens of human geography data and geospatial applications to collect information about these cities and focusing on emergency preparedness and data that they didn't have previously in 16 different cities around the world and locations that really lacked even a basic city map. It's interesting, Gwyneth and I were talking this morning that when the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group started back in 2011, it was founded on that principle of when disaster happens, how can we help people um, if we don't know where they were? And so it was our mission very early on is to map where they are so we can help them you know, during disaster and, and know where they, they are now. So, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic project. And curious, um, can you talk a little bit about the types of data that you gathered through the project? Yeah, that's a really good question. We focused on identifying common base layers and particularly human geography data. So things that had to do with infrastructures, with where are schools located, where's open space locations, um, where are the services such as water and electricity, markets, things like this that have us understand the landscape where people are living and what sort of services are there and where aren't these services? And how do we understand that in these different locations? And it's such critical data. How did you decide which um, types of data for each location? Because I know the Secondary Cities Project was all over the world. So did you get that data for each place all over the world? How did that work? Yeah, that's a really good question and a really challenging activity of the project. You know, we did identify these common base layers. So things like transportation was pretty common across all of our cities. But then we also asked each of our cities to identify the priority. What did they really need there? And so that created this unique aspect of each of our projects where while we had some common data layers, there were data layers that were unique to that city to address their specific needs. Yeah, so how did you make those partnerships? It was really through the embassies, um, through talking embassies because they know what's going on in their own backyard the best. So working with the environmental science technology um, officers or the um, REOs, the, the regional environmental officers in the different embassies, 
to be able to tell us, you know, who do you know that that would be a good partner? And our primary partner were really universities. We looked at universities as islands of stability that we could partner with to do things, to be able to have a strong partnership, but also to think about linking to those people who are going to be the future leaders. So training students at these universities to be able to understand the importance of geospatial technology. That's great. That's, I mean, real building resiliency. How did you decide who to partner with in each location? Yeah, that's a really good question. We worked with the U.S. embassies in each of the different cities, and we talked to the environmental science, technology, and health officers, as well as the regional environmental officers who know what's going on in their own backyard. They were able to link us with local experts or our contacts that they had to identify really strong leaders in the in the lo- location. Um, we specifically targeted universities that we think are islands of stability in these locations, and for for two reasons: one, because of that, because they're they're long term partners, but second, because they're giving us access to students who are going to become tomorrow's leaders, and so identifying ways to train students to be geospatial leaders was really an important piece of the Secondary Cities Project. What are the secondary cities? Like what locations were you looking at? If you can tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, there are 16 of them scattered throughout the world. Um, I'd have to try to remember. We're going to have to test your memory. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, in in, uh, the Asia region, we were looking at Pokhara, Nepal. We looked at Den Penzar, Indonesia. Uh, we were um, in Dira, India, um, and we also focused on Kharkiv, Ukraine. And so that brings to thinking about what's going on in Kharkiv right now. And one of the kinds of data we collected in partnership with our, our colleagues in, in Kharkiv were urban springs. So I can't think of an example that demonstrates how important human geography is than this data layer that was collected by our colleagues. These are urban springs in the city of Kharkiv that have been used for a very long time as parks, as an amenity, but also as a source of fresh water. Our colleagues there collected data about um, how fast the the springs flow, uh, the quality of the springs, um, and where they are, and the amenities are located, uh, associated with them. And these potentially are places that are being used right now as we're watching the destruction of that city. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I When you would do these efforts in the different cities that you focus on, were you in-country, or is this something that you would do um, from the U.S.? So I visited every single one of our partner cities for the Secondary Cities Project, so 16 different cities, you know, and we have three in uh, no, we had several in Africa. We had uh, Pemba, Mozambique, Port Harcourt, Nigeria, and, and uh, Mikeli, Ethiopia. Um, this is another example of a place that's being impacted by conflict in Mikeli in north northwestern uh, Ethiopia. So the importance of having this kind of geospatial data at times like these, I think, cannot be emphasized enough. So it really shows the importance of looking at these secondary cities that are so necessary to understand the human geography there. I can only imagine 
how it feels to spend some time in these cities and get an understanding for their culture, uh, their challenges, and then, you know, watch some of the, the struggles that are unfolding today over the news. Um, so as we continue to talk a little bit about the Secondary Cities Project and all the data discovered, where could our listeners find these um, rich data? That's a good question. Um, we have websites uh, where you can find the Secondary Cities Project, and through that there's linkages to um, uh, ArcGIS Online um, uh, Center where you can go and find these data. Uh, there's, there's, it's also through the Humanitarian Information Unit. There's a link on their website where you can actually find the data itself. Um, but then description of secondary cities can be found at the secondarycities.gov website. And we'll put all of that in the show notes so all the listeners can check out those links that Melinda is talking about and you can go explore those rich data sets. So what about, so you said this project ended in 2019. Are there any follow-on projects for secondary cities? Yes. Yeah, so um, what we maintain contacts with all of our network of these cities throughout the, the following year, and then the pandemic hit. And so there were uh, external or there were um, foreign service funds that were um, we were able to acquire and to kind of revisit the secondary cities network. And that turned into the city's COVID mitigation mapping project. And so building on the network of secondary cities, we identified three regional hubs, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And we, I, we asked uh, leaders in each of our different hubs to be the hub lead and facilitate projects about second order impacts of the COVID pandemic in selected cities that they identified. And the thing that was unique about this project was that it was entirely virtual. So rather than having me go to six, you know, the 12 different cities that were part of this network, we did it virtually and had our hub leads facilitate on-site activities that went on in these different cities. So what kind of data did you discover from that project? So this is really fascinating because, uh, for example, our projects in Latin America, which were in Ecuador, Peru, uh, Chile, and Brazil, uh, one of the aspects they looked at was domestic violence and understanding during lockdown and reporting to police or not reporting to police what was happening with the uh, how domestic violence was being uh, tracked and how were we able to then map that by aggregating data and looking at where the hotspots were located uh, ver uh, pre-lockdown versus during the lockdown and then after lockdown in these, these locations. So it was really interesting to see this pattern and trying to track this pattern over time and space. It's very interesting, Melinda, when you talk about those second and third order impacts um, as it relates to COVID, I'm, I'm certain that we'll continue to, to learn more and study this probably for the next decades, would you say? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that it's so important for us to take this moment and reflect on what we've learned from the pandemic, what we can do, what works well, um, and really creating these hybrid models of doing research, of doing outreach with others, that we really have a, a critical moment right now to think about this and reflect on it. Oh, absolutely. 
So now you also focus a lot of your research on water security. How does that fit into the topics we've been discussing today with secondary cities, participatory mapping, and COVID? I think there's a couple of things to think about. So it, it has to do with obviously access to water and thinking about basic needs for water and the fundamental right to water. So this all feeds into all of that. We definitely need to have access to water. And it was demonstrated quite effectively about um, in informal settlements, particularly in Nairobi, where we were doing one of our, our uh, COVID projects. Um, during the lockdown in an informal settlement, how did people have access to water? They couldn't leave their homes after a certain time in the evening. Uh, where did they go to be able to find that water? And being able to map water points is just essential, again, for issues of water security. This also speaks to uh, thinking about the sustainable development goals and how these are fulfilled and how we can use these geospatial human geography data to address these problems. And so I think a, a key thing to think about for these next stage of things are, are two elements. You know, what are the services that are needed for people and at what scale do we collect this very important data where we recognize that local data is so important? And so that's why participatory mapping is so critical for this effort, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, participatory mapping speaks to accessing that local data and having people being able to take ownership of how their places are mapped, what is mapped, and how their stories are being told. So what's next for your water research? Well, that's a good question. Um, right now, what's happening with water research is, um, again, looking at how we can start to track some of the activities that are going on in Kharkiv. We're trying to pull together a team of students that can look at existing resources about Ukraine and see if we can pull some information together to be helpful with that, particularly related to basic services, water being one of them. Um, another aspect is looking at the relationship between issues associated with conflicts between um, the availability of water, uh, farming needs and conservation. This is a project going on in Southern Brazil that I'm, I'm just getting started on. So, so there's a whole suite of things that are gonna be building on uh, using this participatory approach and how we can refine that. So COVID is um, obviously ever present. Have you started traveling again? And what countries might see uh, you and your work and your research in the future? Oh, all I want to do is travel again. I haven't, you know, and what's so odd about this, this um, activity of traveling, the last place I went right before the pandemic hit was Kiev, Ukraine. Oh, wow. Um, that's in September, in February of 2020. That was my last international trip. So to, again, you know, this is just very um, um, real to me in terms of watching this real-time war un unravel on the television to just see this, this happening. And it just really brings home the importance of collecting these kinds of data. And I, I would just add a couple comments about these projects and some key things we learned about them that that we need to be thinking about for the future. And one is increasing the accessibility of high resolution, remotely sensed data for doing this mapping. How do we open up that a bit more so it's not quite so closed? Um, having better population data 
and the methods to disaggregate data to a finer spatial scale is absolutely essential. And then thinking about the various assessments that need to go hand in glove with these assessments of the natural resources, the impact of climate change, the um, status of the infrastructure in terms of how we're going to redesign systems to meet human needs and, and human needs as well as environmental needs. That's a great answer. And I would like to remind viewers, and you'll see in the show notes, you can go back and listen to all of the events and listen to the presentations that um, Dr. Latouri has made uh, 2016 and the two in 2020. Well, thank you so much, um, Melinda, for joining us today. This was such a rich discussion. Please join us next week for another conversation on human geography and human security on Through the Human Geography Lens. If you're interested in learning more about human geography and the WWHGD, check us out at wwhgd.org, where you can find more than 5,000 cataloged human geography data sets and access presentations and recordings for more than 50 data-driven events. I'm Gwyneth Holt. And I'm Terry Ryan. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you again next time.